18 through 31. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Welcome to church. Please say hello to someone as you have a seat. What's up, y'all? Y'all ready to baptize people? Yeah! yeah this go, it's going down, whether you're ready or not. Um, <clears throat> before we get started, uh, I just need to thank Gary Abraham. Um, for holding it down this week in a profound and challenging way. Uh, if you did not hear his sermons on favoritism, I would uh, highly encourage you to go on our podcast. It's on most podcast platforms and download and listen to it. As he called us as a group of people to get, kind of get over ourselves and love others, no matter where they are, or where they come from, or who they are. So I'm thankful for you, brother, and what you bring to this place. Um, today, we're going to dunk people. But before we do, my goal is to deeply encourage and empower you uh, if you are a Christian in this room, so that, if at all possible, by any possible means, you would know, like in your bones know, like no, 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 that no matter what your background is, no matter what your IQ is, whether you're ugly or handsome, whether you are physically fit or unfit, no matter your race or ethnicity or nationality, if you are wealthy or poor, even regardless of your political party, everybody gets to play in the kingdom. Everybody gets to play in the kingdom. That's, what, that's my goal today, just to encourage you in this really, really simple idea. Everybody gets to play in the game. God can use even little old you uh, to have such a profound and lasting impact on the world that your life leaves a wake that echoes through eternity. Uh, listen, cards on the table. Uh, I believe and, and want everyone in this room, that I believe that everyone in this room, if you were a Christian, your life would be better. I just believe that. I want you to be a Christian. I want you to know Jesus. But today, the primary question is not that I want you to wrestle with. It's not whether or not you're a Christian. It's whether or not you, you think your life matters. Can your life, little old you, can you make a difference? Do you even want to make a difference in your world? Does your faith in any way catalyze you to be an agent of change in the world? Huh? 
Uh, because oddly enough, uh, there's a whole lot of Christians out there that for one reason or another have zero desire to make their life matter in the grand scheme of things. They coast along as if we've been invited on some sort of Christian cruise liner and expect things to be served to them like they're on vacation. Uh, I don't know if you believe this about yourself, but the Bible is going to maintain every single one of you has been uniquely, specifically, intentionally wired by God with your weirdo personality and all your little quirks and ticks and bad fashions and passions and temptations and characteristics and interests and skills. The Bible is going to maintain all of that stuff about you, stuff you're proud of, stuff you're not proud of. All of it can be used in breathtaking, majestic, God-glorifying eternal ways. All of it. Even your weakness, brother. Look at me. Even your failures and sins, if you will lay them down at the foot of Jesus, can be used to to express a unique characteristic of who God is to the world. All of it. You and you and you and you. And if I knew all your names, I'd say them all. You were created to be his image in the world. And that has real ramifications, especially in the kind of fallen world we find ourselves in. But no matter how many sermons as direct and aggressive as this are preached on Sunday mornings across the nations, you have hordes of Christians sitting on the sidelines of meaningful, purposeful, living as if it mattered type life. All right? They don't even think it's on the table. I'll be honest with you. They don't even think it's on the table. So they stay on the sidelines. They think, I live my life in the margins of significance. You know what I'm talking about? When you, when you think that nothing you do matters, here's significance right here in the center of the world, and I live my life on the margins of that because I'm not very valuable as a person. I'm not significant as a person. And no matter how many sermons we say things like, God's wired you intentionally so you can live on purpose, we believe deep in our hearts in in this ingrained almost insignificance as if what we do doesn't matter. And I'm just here to tell you, that's a lie from the pit of hell. The way you live your life, seen and unseen, matters eternally, brother and sister. And maybe today you feel very much on the sidelines of significance. You don't feel like you can make a difference at all. Why? Why do Christians tend to live their lives on the sidelines? What stops Christians from attempting even to make a difference in the world? Either we, we think the Christian life is really about us and making us comfortable, so we turn everything inward and judge communities and churches by what they add to my life, right? We, there are kinds of people, this is one of the reasons people stay on the sidelines. Sorry, let me be clear. Uh, there are kinds of people who bring a bunch of conditions to God. A bunch of Christians do this. And so they say stuff like this. I will follow you if. A bunch of Christians do this. Oh, dude, all the time. I do this. I, I will follow you closer and more intentionally if you make my marriage work out. I will follow you if you find me a spouse, God. I will follow you and be obedient to you if. You save my marriage or save my job. See, the purpose of their faith in many instances is fulfilling their own desires. And so we use God as a kind of genie in a bottle and say, if I find you useful, I'll let you into my life. That, my friends, is called consumeristic Christianity, and it's the air we breathe in America. It's the kind of Christianity that we come to thinking it's really all about me. That will cause you to think there is no reason for you to make a difference in the world. It's all about you. 
and your preferences. There's one reason that people stay on the sidelines, and that's real. That's there. Okay, welcome to church, by the way. Um, the other reason Christians, I feel like I get a little heavy there. Let's just lighten it up. The other reasons Christians stay on the sidelines, and maybe this is really more prevalent, and maybe where you live is a deep, deep sense of disqualification. Many Christians stay on the sidelines because of some perceived lack in their life, an insufficiency. We think, I don't know the Bible enough to make a difference. We think, I don't have enough faith. I'm not pure enough. I don't have the skills to help on Sunday morning. I can't sing or preach as if the only thing meaningful that happens in the Christian life happens one hour on Sunday morning. Okay, just saying. So many church-going Christians stay on the sidelines, uh, not, not of ministry on Sundays, but of living on purpose because they think I'm not qualified to do it, either because a deep sense of consumerism or a deep sense of disqualification. But what did we just read? The New Testament is going to deal with consumerism head on in other places and aggressively. Here, what we read today, what is God trying to combat in your heart? Did you read the scripture? Let's look. It says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written... Uh, side note, just interestingly enough, there are things in life, uh, like massively significant things, that, that it's the same thing. The power, the, the cross, there it is. There's the thing he's talking about. And there are things in life that some of you, because of how you've positioned your life, it will be stupid to you. And others of you, because of how you've positioned your life, it would be wisdom to you. That's fascinating, isn't it? That's like real life. Some of us will be repulsed by something, and other people will be drawn to it, magnetically drawn to it, like it'll change their life. And what's the difference in those people? Jesus would talk about your heart like soil, and that some of the soil of our hearts is such that it can receive things, and things can grow, and others, the soil of our hearts is so hard that no matter how hard the seeds are put on it, nothing will ever grow. Same thing, two drastically different interpretations of the thing, two drastically different definitions of whether or not that thing has meaning. Back to the notes. For it is written, I destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Some of you are saying, yeah, you're spitting some folly right now. Nothing you're saying makes sense. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than man. He's dealing with the world's definition of what it means to be significant. He's dealing with the world's definition of what it means to have value and meaning. Who matters in life? Who do you think matters in the world? And he points out two groups, those with power and those with intelligence. Now, especially today in the information age, everyone thinks there's someone because they can Google something, right? And spit out a bunch of information, right? Like everyone's real impressed, bro. You got internet access. Cool. But... We know it's smart people that make a difference in the world, don't we? 
We know it's powerful people that make a difference in the world. They have the means to change the world, not me. We know powerful people matter. We know intelligent people matter, however we interpret that. Maybe it's political power you think that really matters, that really makes a difference. So, or maybe you think it's monetary power, financial power. That's the kind of power that really makes a difference in the world, right? So if you have money or if you have political sway, then you can make a difference in the world. Those are the powerful people. And we know, we know, we know really, really smart people matter right? It's inventors and economists and scientists that make a difference in the world and that create things and the world changes because of them. We know that. So deep inside of us, because we do want our lives to matter deeply, when our metric of meaning and significance is power and intelligence, we routinely act stronger than we really are and we routinely act smarter than we really are because we want to matter. And we know we don't. We have this deep insecurity that I don't really matter. So I have to pretend like I am smarter and stronger than I am. And some of us do it all, all the time. Some of us are oppressively aggressive in the way in which we are pretending to be smarter and stronger than we really are. Because we cannot handle the idea that we aren't smart, we aren't strong, and therefore we don't matter. See? We compulsively Google things so we can look like an expert. Power and intelligence. This, very often, y'all, is the metric of our meaning and significance and value in life. You guys with me? But what is scripture doing here? Paul wants to flip those things on their heads. He wants to completely revolutionize what you think you need as an individual to make your life matter. He says, Jews demand signs, that's power. Greeks seek wisdom, intelligence. But we preach Christ crucified, which satisfies neither groups in their definition of value and success, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God's wiser than man, the weakness of God stronger than man. What, what is that last line saying right now? He's saying, the, the, that last line, the foolishness of God is wiser than man, weakness of God stronger than man. What is he, he's saying that your metrics of meaning, power and, signif- power and intelligence, they're so tiny. He's like, that's cute. (laughs) Or in Southern, bless your heart, right? (laughs) What a tiny, tiny, tiny little definition of value and significance to just have power and intelligence. For God's foolishness is wiser than your collective wisdom. And God's weakness is stronger than man's collective strength altogether. But you want to see true power? You want to see true significance? You want to see what it looks like to live in a way that leaves a wake for eternity, that echoes on through all of time and space? You want to see what real significance looks like? Jesus of Nazareth is the definition of true power and true wisdom. Real significance, real power, real intelligence are found only in him. And Jesus totally confounded how we think about power and significance, didn't we? Didn't he? He seemed to have a completely different definition of what it means to be strong and what it means to be smart. To the Jews, Jesus looked meek and humble and therefore insignificant. To the Greeks, he looked foolish and dumb and therefore insignificant, lacking in value. But scripture is saying, if you want your life to matter in any real way, any significant way, you have to start getting your definition of significance from Jesus. Now, some of you already, you're like, I'm, I'm fine. I don't want my life 
to matter, so I don't need to get my definition. Well, that's okay. I mean, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here, okay? Now, this, I hope, I hope y'all just got what I was trying to do there. I, I want to make that sting just a little bit if you don't want your life to matter. Like, I want you just to sit with that and ask yourself in your heart, why do I, as an individual, not think my life can make a difference? What are the things that you are pointing to, brother and sister, as to what makes you less meaningful and valuable in the world? Because I'm, I'm here to tell you that this idea that Jesus is laying before us, the scripture is laying for us, is as revolutionary today as it was back then and may be the most powerfully liberating truth you could ever know. Why? How on earth can I say getting your definition and sense of significance from Jesus is one of the most liberating, freeing, emancipating realities you could ever experience? And just to pile it a bit higher, that this truth about getting your significance from Jesus has the ability to catalyze you into living a more meaningful, impactful, powerful life than you could ever dream or think possible. Why is this idea remarkably transformative? It is not an exaggeration to say that this idea, this truth, was one of the main ideas that made Christianity so explosive throughout history and throughout the centuries. He explains, let's read. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Just real quick, he's not ruling out the wise and powerful and noble. He's just saying not many of you were that, and therefore it's, it's, it's not needed is what he's trying to point out. He's not condemning it. He's just saying, you don't need it. That's not the metric of meaning in the kingdom, all right? But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Some of us right now say, I'm a person who is not. We feel that our existence doesn't even matter. I'm a nobody. And he says, I'm, I'm even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of him, you're in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, so that no man may boast. Now, let's talk about it for a second. He has this list. You see the list? It's this list of what God chooses or you might say, the kind of people God chooses, likes to choose. And what is the list? Well, it's foolish, weak, low, despised, things that are not. God likes to choose those type things. Low, despised, foolish, weak, things that are not. See, people who are uh, smart and intelligent and have strength and power, and they are high and adored, and they tend to function under the misconception that they made themselves, typically. The elite of the world tend to function under the misconception that they have made themselves, and therefore have no one to thank for where they are. But people who know that they are foolish, people who know that they are weak, and low, and despised. Whew. Those kind of people, God says, I can flex my glory through types like that. People who think they're nobodies. People who have given up on living a life that matters. People who think that their sins are so oppressively domineering over the landscape of their lives, they don't even attempt, don't even attempt to do Christian stuff. People like that, people that know 
that they're weak and despised and lowly, apparently it lights up the eyes of God to take people like that and flex before the eyes of the world. Why does God choose nobodies? Because it's people like that who know that beyond a shadow of a doubt, it is God who makes strong and it is God who makes wise. People that have lost confidence in their own strength and own wisdom. Have you? It's people like that that don't boast in themselves, but boast in God. And this is why we have an historical account, an instance over and over and over in Christian history of nobodies standing before somebodies. Nobody, people without power, I mean, all throughout history. Uh, you can just go find Martyrs, Book of Foxes, Book of Martyrs. You can, all, all throughout the centuries, you have nobodies. People without power, foolish people, unintelligent people, standing before those who have power, who have wisdom, and completely infuriating them with the wisdom of God. They're, I mean, it's remarkable. Let me just show you a few. Uh, I mean, literally, what happens is these nobodies get before the somebodies, and the somebodies are speechless. Like, they don't even know what to say. Like, in some cases, the nobodies drive the somebodies to rage and madness because of the stuff coming out of their mouths. Let me, let me give you a few examples of the Bible. All right? In Acts 4, it says, When they saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized they were unschooled, common, untrained men. They were astonished. This is hilarious. You know the word for common? Idiotas. <laughs> Idiotas. You know what that word is? Dude, these dudes are idiots. When, these, when the powerful men, when the men of wisdom and power and eliteness, when they saw these men, they said, these guys are dumb. And then they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who was healed, they had, someone had just been healed, standing with them, there was nothing they could say. Or in Acts 7, Stephen so enrages these guys in power. This is, this is what these guys do. They gnash their teeth. What is that? I don't even know. What is gnashing your teeth? I think it's like grinding your, I don't know what that is, but they did that. They covered their ears. They yelled at the top of their lungs and they rushed him. Y'all, that's how my three-year-old acts when I tell her no. And the wisdom of God through a nobody turned a bunch of powerful elite men into three-year-olds pitching a fit. Because the metric of meaning and power was not being acknowledged. This guy didn't have the kind of intelligence he needed. He didn't have the kind of power he needed. Who does he think he is? And they were infuriated that he would have the audacity to stand before them with the boldness of God in his heart and speak to them the word of the Lord. I tell you, I mean, I'm just not going to stretch it too far. That might not be what you did what's happening now. Like you're, like you're looking at me thinking, you're clearly an idiot. You've never been professionally trained. But what I'm trying to do with all my heart is speak with boldness the word of the Lord so that some of you might be saved. So that some of you might, when the foolishness of what's happening right here, the salvation of God might spring up in your hearts and lives, right? Wow. The wisdom of God through nobody turned the powerful into little three-year-olds, and then they stoned him to death. What does this mean for us? Let's start to land the plane. What does it mean that God routinely in Scripture chooses nobodies, non-Jews, even women? In antiquity. In antiquity, a culturally radical notion. Women to rescue his people and glorify his name. Ruth was a Moabite, a woman and a non-Jew. Rahab was a, another, a Gentile prostitute. Jesus points out he sent Elijah to non-Jewish widows in Sidon and heals the Syrian general uh, um, Naaman of leprosy. 
when there were plenty of Jews in Jerusalem that had leprosy, and that basically gets him kicked out of his town. What does it mean to us that God uses the lowly and the weak and the stupid? He uses the infertile, like Sarah, and the youngest, like David. Well, it means that God can use the likes of me. It means that God can use the likes of you, not to offend you. I'm betting right now there are plenty of people in this room who want to live a life that matters. I'm also betting every single one of us has lingering under the surface of our bravado and best intentions a deep sense of disqualification. That no matter how strong or smart you really are, that sense of disqualification plagues your heart. We want to do something bold and brilliant. And something inside of our heart says, not you. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't know enough about Jesus to say something at work. Keep your mouth shut. You can't pray for your kids that night. They saw how you treated them an hour ago. You can't read the Bible with your spouse. You kidding me? You're not smart enough to lead a small group. And if we're all honest, that struggle of feeling weak and insignificant, of course, we try to cover it up, but it plagues us. We do all we can do to avoid those feelings, but it's always there, right behind every noble intention you have. Listen, do you think I'm an exception up here? You don't think I have a deep feeling of disqualification to be up here before you right now? You don't think I have a little voice in my head that says, oh, you're going to preach a sermon? Yeah? You're going to lead a church? You? Remember that time you yelled at your kids like 24 hours ago? Remember that time you raised out of them over nothing, got in a fight with your wife over where to put a couch? Remember that time? Right? Got in a fight with your wife whether or not you should put mushrooms in spaghetti sauce? Which, of course, no. Like, what, what are we, psychos? No. You, you're going to lead a church? You're going to preach a sermon? <laughs> a line was just drawn in this church. Those who put mushrooms in spaghetti sauce. Don't you see what the gospel does, y'all? Don't you see what it did for the New Testament authors? Don't you see what it did for the early church and what it wants to do for you? It wants to take the center point, the ballast of your life, off of your shoulders and on the shoulders of Jesus. The question is no longer in the kingdom. Am I wise? Am I powerful? Am I smart? I can tell you, no, you're not, right? The question is, is Jesus wise? Is he powerful? Is he strong enough? It places, y'all, the gospel places the foundation of your value as a person off of your ability and onto the ability of Jesus. That's what the gospel, the very focal point of your life, shifts from you to Jesus. That's what it said. Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. What did he become? Righteousness, sanctification, redemption. Dude, he takes away the right to boast? Yes. He also takes away the oppressive voice of the accuser. Don't leave me. Stay with me. Because the accuser has nothing to say to Jesus. The accuser can come to you, and he can say things like, you're a sinner. And we have to say, yep, you are correct. And now, in the gospel, our answer is, but Jesus isn't, and he gives his righteousness to me. The accuser can come to you and say, you are faithless. And we say, yes. But our answer now is that Jesus is faithful despite my faithfulness. He can say, you are weak. And we say, yes. And in my weakness, he is made strong. He can come to us and say, you're stupid. And we'll say, well, I mean, probably. But Jesus, Jesus 
is the wisdom of God. And he gives it to me. He can come to you and say, you are insufficient as a husband, as a father, as a parent, as a pastor. You are insufficient as a Christian, to which we reply, who is sufficient for such things? And you're right, we aren't. We aren't sufficient in and of ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. But our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant, not the letter of the, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Please, please, please hear me before we wrap it up. God does not come to you like our culture comes to you and says things like, you're enough, you're strong enough, you're beautiful enough, you're everything about you, you're perfect. Guys, hear me out. It's not how the gospel comes to us because we know deep in our hearts it ain't true. It doesn't try to put a Band-Aid on your deepest... The gospel doesn't put a Band-Aid on your deepest failures and sins. Our culture does. Our culture will say, just ignore it. You're strong enough. You're brave enough. Everything about you is perfect. You're, you're amazing. It's not what the gospel does. He's going to say, quit looking to yourself for meaning and value and significance and receive what can only be given in relationships. Y'all, meaning, value, and significance is only given in relationships, not by others, but by God and God alone. No other religion comes close to this. Stay with me. Every other religion only compounds the world's definitions of value and power. Other religions say you have to be stronger. Then God will accept you. Other religions say you have to be smarter, and then God will honor you. Christianity says Jesus takes the lowly and the weak and the nobodies and receives them, not because of what they've done, but because of what he's done. Or you could say it this way. Everybody gets to play in the kingdom. Everybody. Not based on our talents or our skills and our strength or our wisdom, but on Jesus. Y'all, the New Testament maintains it is the spirit of Christ himself that indwells you, not your best efforts at mimicking him. It is him himself that comes into you. And on that note, let me end with a practical conclusion. How can God take weakness and make it strength? How can God take foolishness and make it wisdom? How can he take low things and raise them up? What's the mechanics for how your life can gain eternal significance? How do you, how? What's the mechanics of weaponizing your life for God? Like where you become a weapon in his hand. To destroy the kingdom of darkness, like, and liberate the captives and be men and women of light before whom darkness flees in terror. How can our lives begin to take on the nature of Jesus full of power and wisdom? It's one word. And it is a word full of strife and complexity and conflict and even violence. How can our lives begin to matter eternally? How can God take us and make us strong? Brothers and sisters, do you want your existence to mean something? To be more than a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury? Do you want your life to be more than a walking shadow, in the words of Shakespeare? How can our lives begin to mean something? If your heart longs for anything close to that, it is as simple and horrifying as one word. It's one word that takes the foolishness and weak and low and despised things and uses them to bring to naught the things that are. This is literally the only requirement in Christianity it is full, total, and unconditional surrender. There's one prayer you have to learn how to pray if you want your life to matter. And you learn it from Jesus. Not my will, but yours be done. If you want your life to make an eternal impact on the world, you have to learn one prayer. Your kingdom come. 
your will be done. Until you are willing to surrender your little kingdom to the kingdom of Jesus, you will be limited and defined by your own little kingdom, by your own wisdom, by your own power. Until we are willing to lay our lives naked and bare before God, vulnerable and exposed as we really are, foolish and weak and lonely as we really are, until we are willing to surrender what we really are, God cannot make you who he wants you to be. Dude, you got to quit lying to God. you got to quit lying to him. Because until we see our own foolishness and weakness, we will not be willing to surrender. It is only when we see the emptiness of our wisdom and strength that we are willing to surrender to God's wisdom and strength. Or as one theologian said, the gospel means now the power of man's strength is in the measure of his surrender. The power of man's strength is in the measure of his... Do you, the degree of which you want to impact the world is the degree of which you surrender your life before God. That's the Christian definition. God cannot use your strengths and skills and talents and character and all the wonderful things about you. He cannot use your role at work. He cannot use your role at home. The fact that you're a mom or a dad, he cannot use uh, any of those things about you, any of those good things about you. Likewise, he cannot use your failures and your sins, and your shortcomings. He cannot use your weaknesses and your foolishness until you lay them at his feet. And then he can use them until you take your hand off and say, all of this I give to God. Listen, y'all, everything about you, everything about you, your strengths, your passions, your hobbies, your weaknesses, your sins can be weapons in the hands of God if you will lay them at his feet. If you will take your hand off, even your shame. Some of you are holding on to the shame of your past. Some of you are holding on to failures and sins, and they are stopping you from becoming effective in the kingdom. And today God is saying, I don't just want your strengths, dude. I want your weaknesses too. Now take your hands off and let me have them. Because... Your sins and your failures will crush you. But if you give them to me, I will let them crush my son in your place. And I will take your weakness and I will turn it into strength because I love you deeply. And I have amazing, majestic, eternally significant things for you to do in this life. I believe there are people in this room right now, God is calling to remarkable, eternal things. And the only thing between you and that is surrender. Now, we are getting ready to dunk people. <laughs> now, I want to be honest. There's nothing magical about these waters. James, can you pull up the light for us? I think it's the worship button. I want to be honest. There's nothing magical about these waters. We've joked there are no radioactive Jesus spiders in those waters that will bite you and you'll wake up the next day with a six-pack. Um, the power is not in the water. The power is not in the water. The power is in the surrender that the water symbolize. We tracking? And if you are here today and want to make a public declaration of that surrender right now, I don't care if you're walking off the streets. Right now, you can come up here and you can get baptized. I will baptize you. Right now. In your street clothes. I'll take your phone. It'll be fine. But... If you are here today and you have never laid down these things before God and you want to say, I, I want to take the first step in surrender right now. I want to lay my kingdom down and say yes to his kingdom. You've never done that. You can do it today with these people who have told me. So if you're getting baptized, come on up here.